We'll be right back after this. I've actually been using today's sponsor for over three years and love them. And that company is Mint Mobile. After years of fine print contracts getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear me say Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you might think, what's the catch? But the cool part is that there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They don't have retail stores or salespeople, which cost a lot of money. Instead, they deliver premium phone plans directly to you. Say goodbye to your multi-hundred dollar phone bill per month and start using Mint Mobile where plans start as low as 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash fyshow. That's mintmobile.com slash fyshow. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash fyshow. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Now back to the show. Take some time, even if it's one day, figuring out who you can serve and what you can help them accomplish. Then as far as monetizing, the absolute fastest thing you could do is... Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Graham Cochran, who's going to teach us how to create and validate a business idea. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Yeah, I spent um, a lot of the weekend trying to get kind of productive after getting back from Park City, getting some stuff together, getting the house cleaned up, doing some little things to the Tesla, like playing around with a 3D printer. But it turned out that uh, it wasn't really long lived my time in Austin. I was going to hit the road again that it wasn't super planned. For those who are kind of keeping track of my car swaps and all this stuff, trust me, I understand if you're getting a little confused of what I'm doing and which car I might be in today. So before, you know, back a couple months ago, whatever, had the, the new F-150 that I'd bought, had an old car that I had for years and decided, mm, actually, I kind of want to get a, I have a newer car and an older truck, like a work truck versus having a new truck that I kind of babied in, in an old car that I ended up driving too much. So swapped out the F-150 for a Tesla, but then I found my work truck, which happens to be an older F-150. So I got a 2010 F-150 that I flew to Cincinnati. The dealer came and picked me up from Kentucky, and then I drove from Kentucky down to Mississippi to break up the drive, but I got it for 8200 bucks, so a much more reasonable truck that I don't have to be so concerned about when I'm like throwing wooden stuff in the back of, and yeah, I'll be hitting the, the road tomorrow going back to Austin, and then the priority is strictly getting that house ready to get it rented before South By comes through, but we've made tons of progress. We got the foundation fixed. We just got all the sheetrock fixed on Friday. So we're making moves. I was going to say, Justin, I feel like you might be the world record holder for longest distances drive to secure cars. Because <laughs> <laughs> you drove the truck, the old new truck from, what was it, like New Jersey or something? Oh, Philadelphia. That's what it was. And then this one. So was it just like an awesome deal getting it in Cincinnati and driving it that far? Yes, like I said, it was in Lex. It was just outside of Lexington, Kentucky, and they were they offered to come get me in Cincinnati, where the flights were much better, which was an hour and a half each direction. And the other cool thing, which I don't know if this is like a pro tip or not, but I was like, okay, they're going to come get me. 
I want to make sure they come and get me in the vehicle that I'm going to buy. So at that point, I knew it drove an hour and a half to come get me. And then I got to drive it for an hour and a half, which is a very extended test drive. You know, normally you're making a couple blocks in a truck. And so that made me feel a lot better about like, hey, I'm about to, have to get in this thing and drive it across the country. At least I know that it drove well for three hours. Cool. Yeah. I was just generally curious because it's not something that you hear often. I know you've been able to save a bunch of money doing that stuff. So for me, it has been an absolute whirlwind of a week slash weekend. Actually, literally yesterday, just got back from Loon. And for those who are in the Northeast, you know, we finally got some good snow up at Loon. They got like seven or eight inches. So the conditions were just absolutely amazing. And I even made it up to Killington this weekend on Saturday, skied Loon on Monday and Tuesday. We have friends that own a condo up there. So we had four couples, a whole group of us. It was a whole ton of fun. Finally, kind of getting those runs in that I've been waiting for all winter long. And even with all that fun, crazy stuff going on, I didn't mention also had a friend's birthday party in Boston and went out to a bunch of bars. I'm still going strong on the dry January, Justin. So hope you're proud of me there. It has been it's been fun kind of learning how to go out and socialize and have fun without drinking. And, you know, every time I'm snowboarding, like I'm putting nips and people not in New England are like, what are you talking about? Shooters, airplane bottles, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> putting those in the pocket, loading up the pockets. And, you know, it, it is fun. It's it's fun doing out down the mountain. But being able to kind of take the sober out this past week and weekend is uh, it's a new thing for me. So it's it's been a ton of fun. And again, this has been a real challenge to myself. And I've been uh, I've been able to flex that no muscle a little bit more with the alcohol. So, yeah, man, it's it's been a win. And I had a ton of fun snowboarding this weekend. Yeah, no, that's awesome to hear. And, you know, it's uh, a little more awkward at first, really around other people. It's only pretty easy by yourself. It gets a little awkward on other people. But you get used to it for sure. All right. Well, let's not bore people with our weekends and what we got going on. Let's talk about our awesome guest for today, Graham Cochran. So this is one I took a lot of notes in. You might want to get your pencils. You might want to get your phone notes out. There's just so many actionable things in this episode. And honestly, the framework that he talks about business and side hustles and validating ideas, I've actually started to develop and use some of the words, some of the phrases, some of the frameworks that he talks about in this episode when I'm talking to people who are thinking of a new business idea. So I just thought Graham just really breaks it down. Like, if you have a new idea, this is exactly what you should do. If this happens, do this. If this doesn't happen, do this. If you want to scale, this is how you scale. And this is a guy with so much proof in the pudding. He has multiple seven-figure businesses. But he started from nothing. Like you'll kind of hear in the story, he started just barely making ends meet or not even making ends meet. He was just kind of doing this stuff as a side hustle, kind of figured out the formula of business. And now he's teaching other people, myself included, how this whole system works. One of the things that really stood out to me, Cody, was, and we've heard it before, but like he really explained the kind of why and to really make sense behind how you should give before you start to kind of like ask for money or ask for a sale, like how you give away your best stuff. You know, you give away so many good tips, you give away so much time and effort, and it builds that loyalty, it builds that audience, it gives you that kind of subject matter expertise in people's eyes. And then you can start to kind of charge for when you take and like really break it down into the super detail. Um, and there's going to be plenty of avenues for you to figure out ways to charge in time, but kind of always looking to kind of serve first to make sure you're giving out a really good product. I thought that was really interesting because you hear people say it sometimes, but it doesn't often click as to what they're talking about and how that functionally works where giving away something actually makes you money. And so whether you just really like this story and it resonated with you or you're looking to start a business or maybe you know someone who's looking to kind of start some kind of online presence like this and you think they could learn a lot from all these actionable tips, 
You can find those show notes or share it with a friend at thefyshow.com slash gram. That's thefyshow.com slash G-R-A-H-A-M. Take it away, Graham. I didn't know a business owner growing up. I mean, my parents were school teacher, engineer. I was told to like, at least implicitly, probably a couple of times explicitly told to just get good grades, go to college, get a job. You know how that is. What I wanted to do though, was just be a rock star, like literally be paid to write songs, tour the world, make albums. And so I lived on the stage as an actor and music, and I just wanted to do creative work. I didn't want to sit behind a desk. I didn't want to think about money. That's what's the interesting thing is I think about money all the time in a good way. And I love it. I'm fascinated with it now. But prior to maybe age 22, I never wanted to think about money. It stressed me out. I just wanted to have plenty of it somehow and be able to do what I wanted to do in my life. Which maybe I think that's what a lot of people want, right? With financial independence is they want to do what they want to do and money gets in the way, but we have, we butt up against money. But it wasn't until I was getting married that I realized, and I, we got married young. I met my wife when we were in college. So we dated all through college. And so we got married at 21, 22. And I was like, crap, I don't know anything about money. You know, I couldn't barely take care of myself. How can I take care of the two of us? I want to be responsible. And I think I picked up a Dave Ramsey book. I think that's where I first started thinking about money. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much to think about. And my mind got blown with like compound interest. And that was like insightful for me of like, I don't have to make a huge income to make a great life and build some wealth. And that was planted in me at age 22. And I got fascinated with personal finance. And this was long before I started a business. I didn't start a business until I had to. I lost two jobs in 09 during the Great Recession and had to find a way to make a living. So like I got pushed over the edge to figure out the entrepreneurial thing. I say, if it wasn't for the recession, I never would have started a business because I was too scared. Didn't want to go that route. I like security. I like a paycheck. Now I'll never go back. I haven't had a job since. I will never go back. But back then, that's what I needed to get pushed off the ledge and start something. And so when you think about like pre-age 22, like when you said you didn't want to think about money, it just kind of stressed you out. You didn't want it on your plate. Like, what do you think made you feel that way about money? Like what made you so reluctant to care about money or to get deeper into it? Oh, you know, insecurity, right? I didn't understand it. I didn't understand investing. Also, I don't like spreadsheets. I don't like number. It just seemed like it would just overwhelm me and stress me out. And so I think there's a lot of fear there. And then once you have that belief, it's just easy to keep that up. And it's just, you need someone to come alongside you, whether it's through your podcast or a book or an actual person to say, hey, don't look at all of it. It's overwhelming if you look at all of it. Here's a couple simple things to think about and make it more approachable. It's like any topic you learn. Like if someone can make it more approachable to you and give you a bite-sized just to see if what you like, I think people will self-select once they get excited about it and they will dive in deeper. And I just needed that to make me realize, oh, like it's not that complicated or you can ignore a lot of the complicated things and still build wealth. That that was exciting to me. And I still to this day live by simplicity as wealth. Like that is a life mantra for me, both in how I run my business and then how I manage my money. Very, very simple because complexity just makes me like freeze up and break. So can we rewind back to 2009? You mentioned you had lost your jobs. I read on your website, you were on food stamps at one point. You kind of just like create a YouTube channel out of, I don't know if it was necessity or desperation. Can we just kind of get inside the mind of Graham at that point? Like what was going on on the money side? How were you making ends meet if you were making ends meet? I know you were probably getting some government assistance as well, but I know that's kind of where it all started for you. Like now you're a YouTube rock star. And at that point, you just like kind of, created a YouTube channel. Can we just kind of go through the mindset there? 
Yeah, that was like the hardest time for us. 2009 to 2011, for 18 months, we were on food stamps. They call it snaps now, I think. And when I think about food stamps, that was a moment of like white flag surrender because I, my wife asked me to apply for food stamps because I lost my job. We burned through our savings. I had a little bit of savings thanks to Dave Ramsey. We burned through that. And when that was out, she had a friend who said, hey, my husband lost his job in construction. They're on food stamps, plenty of money for groceries. Can we apply for this? And I said, no, I have a college degree. I've been working since I'm 14. Like I don't take handouts. And I was a very prideful stance. And so I said no. And then she came back a couple months later and was like, I really think we should apply for this. Can we apply? And so I finally did. I like relented. And to me, that was like waving the white flag of like, I'm a failure. I'm 26 years old. I can't even like pay for groceries. I was super embarrassed. So that's like the context for where I was emotionally. And then what I was trying to do practically, because the only money we had was my wife is a photographer. And so we just had our first baby and bought our first house. We had a mortgage and a baby. And then I lose my job. So you don't want that to happen in that order. But that's where we were. She was trying to take on some like weddings to get a couple of gigs. I was volunteering at our church, like leading the band. And so like they weren't paying me, but they're like, crap, we feel bad for Graham. Let's throw him like 500 bucks a month. There's like a stipend. And it was like little things like that. My little brother was sending me money to help me out. It was really embarrassing. And then what I was trying to do, here was the thought process was, I had a skill as an audio engineer. I went to school, I was working in studios and would make records as like a freelance engineer on the side back when I had a day job. And it was like nights and weekends. It was just play money. And that was fun. I was too scared to rely on that kind of money because I saw how fickle it was. And so I was like, well, that's the only marketable skill I have. So I need to ramp up my freelance work. And we had just moved from Virginia to Florida. So I didn't know anybody locally. So I thought I need to get on the internet start putting out some content. This is about as far as my logic had taken me. Somehow I had the idea. It was content marketing at its best, but I didn't realize it. Put out some content on the internet. I have a better chance of being discovered than if I don't put any content on the internet. Show what I'm doing in the studio with the few clients I do have. And then hopefully people will see that I'm talented, reach out, hire me. That's what led to the YouTube channel because I needed to make some videos to show what I was doing in the software and show people what it sounded like instead of writing about it. And that was the beginning of the journey. I thought I would try to get freelance work. What ended up happening is people started finding the videos. This is 2010, finding the videos and like saying, this was like the most helpful video on this topic I've ever seen. Could you do a video on this? Or could you explain this? And so I became a content creator for free just to help out these people. And I was like, you guys need to hire me. And they didn't want to hire me as much as they wanted to learn how to do what I was doing themselves. And that was the beginning of my like aha moment of maybe there's a a market. And this is so much of what I teach people today is like, whatever you've done or accomplished or figured out, there's other people that want to know how to do it as well. And that could be the foundation of a beautiful business. And so to put some timeframes around it, how long were you going down this route where you thought this is going to be a lead magnet to freelance before you started kind of swapping and realizing "Ah, this is going to be something different than what I initially set out to be. And what did that turning point kind of look like? Like from the engagement that you were seeing? Yeah. So it's probably six months of me putting out content three times a week, every week, trying to get gigs in between. Six months in, I launched a course. I didn't know it was called a course. All I was thinking of was different ways to make money. I'd run some like banner ads on my website. I was doing some sponsorships early on. But then I got the idea of, well, I want to teach this piece of software. It's called Pro Tools, like the Photoshop of the recording studio world. And I've done little videos here and there, but Back then, YouTube would 
cap my uploads to 15 minutes. I could only upload 15 minute videos. And I was like, it's going to take so many 15 minute videos to teach everything about this software. What if I just filmed it? And it's like going to be like four or five hours as if I was teaching a friend next to me, like I've done before and then try to sell it. And what I did is like, I had a PayPal button and a zip file and I just emailed out a couple of people on my list and was like, I called it a thing. And one guy bought it for $45 and I got money in my account. He got a digital file. And that was like when the light bulb went on, like, oh my gosh, if I could do a lot more of this, that's when I was like, maybe this will be part of the strategy, like get some freelance work and then a little bit of this digital sales or whatever it was at, back then. And that's what got me started. But then I quickly saw as the years went on, like, if I put all my eggs in this digital course basket, I can make so much more money just for my time. Like, why would I chase a million clients when I could just do this? And that's what changed everything. So for listeners out there, you know, Justin and I always like to get tactical on the show. Obviously, you already had a knack for music and you had this audio engineer background. How does someone else get like an MVP, a minimum viable product, something that they can productize their knowledge, what you're talking about? It's like, you have this knowledge in your head, you got to figure out a way to monetize it. Like, is there a way to like, kind of test the waters? Like, should it be an ebook or should it be an online course? Like, how do I even go about creating something that people want? Just like anything that you can help and guide listeners to kind of do this for their own skill set, for their own hobby that they might have, for their own skills and things that they've built over the course of their lifetime so far. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to monetize quickly, but I think the most important thing is that you have an audience and you know who that audience is. And so most people want to jump into selling something and that's the exciting part, but the non-exciting but most important part is figuring out who are you going to serve? Who's your little tribe going to be? And what dreams do they have? What pain points do they have to reach those dreams? What are they trying to accomplish, big or small? Are you trying to help somebody learn to speak French? Are you trying to help somebody DIY fix their motorcycle? Are you trying to help somebody lose weight? And who is that somebody? Men and women, a certain age group? What type of people? Like, the more you can just think that through and you can decide in a lot of ways who you want to speak to, as long as there is a market for it, take some time, even if it's one day, figuring out who you can serve and what you can help them accomplish. Then as far as monetizing, the absolute fastest thing you can do is one-on-one coaching because you don't have to build anything. And it's as simple as posting on Instagram or wherever, like, hey, everybody, I'm opening up like three slots for one-on-one coaching to help people X, help this type of person do this. It could be help, you know, dads lose 20 pounds, whatever it is. Like DM me if you're interested in hearing more about what it would look like to learn some of this and work with me. And that kind of just throws the net out there to see if anyone's interested. And if they reach out to you, then you can talk through like, well, what are you trying to accomplish? And what are your pain points? And just get to know them like a person and then make up a package of here's what I do. I have a six call package or a three month package. You can make it up, make up a price. If you're scared, be cheap. It doesn't really matter. The point is to like, sell your experience and your knowledge in a one-on-one capacity that doesn't scale very well, but it's a great way to make money quickly, prove the concept and really to get paid to research. You can have a conversation with one person. You can ask them the best questions and take note of everything they say. Why do you want to lose weight? What would life be like if you lost weight? How much? Like In all that, you copy and paste into a Google Doc and it becomes like real everyday language you can use later in your actual marketing and your sales copy. And it's not marketing speak. It's real people speak. And that's what's going to sell later. And I think that kind of one-on-one is you know, low barrier entry. It's fast, it's private, and it allows you to then catalog, hey, I think if I were to make a little mini course, like an hour, two hour mini video course, 
I would make it on this one little topic that helps people achieve this one specific thing. That would be the next thing you could launch because you'll know people get stuck here and I can help them just at least do that. I think when people go to build a massive course or launch a membership site and they don't have any audience, it gets overwhelming real fast. But one-on-one coaching and then lead to a little mini course, that's a great start. And to just keep the kind of tangible example going, when you were getting started, I don't know if you can recall what your evolution of this avatar or your target audience was and like how you honed in on it, what it ultimately ended up becoming. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. Yeah, so that's a great question. Like I knew I was helping people record their music, but the who was important. So I was helping musicians, not audio engineers, people that didn't care about audio engineering, but wanted to know enough to get their music to sound professional. And they were typically going to do it at home with their own equipment. They didn't want to go to a studio and they were on a budget. So it's like home studio musicians on a budget, which in the music recording world is very different than professional musician in a real studio with a high budget. And so I would speak directly to them. I would review products that were cheap. I would talk about how you can make really cheap stuff sound really, really high end and professional. I would talk about the pain points of recording at home in your mom's basement, you know, the noise outside and the the sirens and like, it's not an ideal acoustic environment. So I would have tips and tricks and hacks to deal with that. So people felt like I was speaking to them with their unique challenges to accomplish their dream. And their dream wasn't to necessarily be famous. It was to put something on Spotify that sounded like they did it in a real studio and people are really impressed by it and their friends are impressed by it. So I I knew that language because these were my actual friends. And the secret is that that was me. Like I was the target market, you know, 10 years prior when I was in high school and college trying to figure this stuff out. And so sometimes the best business to start is the one that you go back in time and help you 10 years ago or five years ago or you know, a month ago, depending on how quickly your transformation is and what were you struggling with and where were you looking for help and where were you not looking for help? And then just speak to that person. So that was my avatar back then. And my avatar now is different too. Like in the online business space, there's a lot of gurus that teach you how to make money. And I'm trying to not sound like, or be like a lot of those guys standing in front of Lamborghinis, holding wads of cash, getting on private jets with scantily clad women. Like that is a target that they're trying to reach. And I'm trying to reach a different target. So I'm going to use different language, different imagery, different values. And we're all teaching in theory how to make money online, but it's a very different group of people. And so you want to think about that. So something I've seen you talk about, Graham, is giving before you get, how being generous can almost come back to you in multiples. And I think talking about the angle we were just talking about, like one-on-one coaching, creating something that's going to be monetized, 
you know, that's very different and it's hard to kind of delineate. Should I give this away for free on my YouTube channel or my podcast or my blog? Should I give this information away for free or should I charge people to like get this information that, you know, you've been learning Pro Tool for 10 years. Like, why would I just create a YouTube video and give all these secrets away for free? Could you just talk about like how to kind of think about that as a creator and how other people in our audience can think about that and figure out what do they want to give away for free via blog, YouTube, podcast, whatever, versus what they want to give away via one-on-one coaching or a course or any other monetized product? Yeah. I mean, give your best stuff away for free. Hmm. Give first. The fear is if I give my best stuff away for free, what do I have to sell? Right? So we can address that first off. And that question is very common. My students have that question. And I had to write about this in the book early on. I wrote this book called How to Get Paid for What You Know. I had to address this before we ever got into it because I knew I was going to spend a lot of the book telling them to give away all this content for free. And they're like, I want to get paid. I don't want to give away (laughs) stuff for free. So how does that happen? And the issue is we're not selling information when we sell our courses or our coaching, right? We're selling transformation. We're helping people get results. And so think about how much content is out there right now on the internet. It's more and more each day. The more content that goes out there, the more overwhelming it gets for people to sift through that content and to know what's good and to know how to curate it all. So a lot of what we're selling in our courses and our paid communities and coaching is A, curation. Here's everything you need to know lined up linearly. Like here's the path. Just follow the steps, right? Just like a financial author could write a book and he or she has talked about this stuff on a podcast or a radio show and you could listen to all the episodes, but if they had a book with their step-by-step plan, that's curated, linear, much easier to digest and take action on. So I'll pay for that curation. Two, with the online course, you're paying for depth because I've got hours I could spend with you really diving deeply into a topic that in a 15-minute, 10-minute YouTube video, I can cover a little nugget of it, but if I really want to nerd out on it, it's going to make more sense inside of a course. So we can dive deeper. So there's depth, there's access and proximity to you, the content creator, right? Inside of my courses, my students can leave questions below the videos. And since they're paid customers, those are the ones I respond to. I don't respond to most of the YouTube comments. I don't have time, but I respond to my customers. They get access to me and get closer into my circle. And the more they spend, the closer they get to me. So that proximity is huge. And then a huge part of it is you can do Q and A's and you can do like actual coaching sold alongside the videos so that they're getting that sort of personalized coaching alongside. They can get their specific question answered, which is harder to do on mass in a podcast or on YouTube. So at the end of the day, that's some of the nuance of it, but it, it's also when, you know, people pay attention when they pay, you know, and so they know if they pay for something, they're going to watch it. They're going to do it. They're more likely to get results. And so they're going to be satisfied with their purchase. So The way I look at it to your question, Cody, is I wouldn't have anything to sell. I would have no one to sell to if I didn't build an audience. And the way you build an audience, in my opinion, is you give, give, give so much content that's discoverable on YouTube and a search on Google. People share it. Oh my gosh, this podcast, like the podcast you guys have is amazing. You got to listen to this episode of the show. They were talking about this, this, and this. It spreads. It's easy to spread. So it's like marketing for you when people are sharing your stuff. And that's how I was able to grow to one of the largest YouTube channels for the recording revolution at the time in that space because people were sharing my videos and that was now my numbers were higher. I had more people going through my sales funnel. I could sell more products. But the other reason is when I give out content, I build loyalty. I build trust. People can test drive my stuff. They get a sense of whether they like learning from Graham or not. And it really weeds out and it curates my ideal customer. So only the people that I really will connect with are going to be the ones going deeper with me who will then buy. 
And so I think it's the best way to grow is to give. And that, my favorite book of all time is The Go-Giver. You're talking about business or personal development. Everybody should read The Go-Giver. You read it in an hour. Bob Berg, John David Mann, it's a little parable. But the idea is it's a beautiful way to describe the power of generosity and making more sales or growing the thing you're trying to grow. When you focus on serving someone else first, it feels like you're lacking because you're giving it away. But all you're doing is building so much trust and rapport. You're building all these lanes of like flow back to you and you're going to have more customers than you can imagine. And you're going to have more experienced helping people that will then translate into your paid products. So I would never go back and give away less content. If anything, I'd give away more content if I had more time. So I think this is a little bit of a continuation of the same idea, the same subject, but you talked about how think about yourself like a month or a year ago, and it's almost like you're teaching yourself. Like You've been on this journey and now you've learned that. And I think sometimes when people get into something like this where, where they want to teach others, they start second guessing like, do I really have this like elite level knowledge that people want? I mean, I just taught myself, like why wouldn't somebody else just teach themselves? I don't know if you could just talk a little bit about like finding that confidence that there's people out there who do genuinely need your help. Like even though there's a million other places they could find some help, and even though sure it is possible they could maybe get there without you, that you do have something to offer, even if you're only, you know, 30% a little further than maybe your audience members. Yeah, you nailed it, Justin. They, people don't need an expert, right? They just need you to help them get results. And these days, people aren't even looking to gurus as much as they were 20 years ago. They really actually prefer normal people where they can choose their teacher. So of all the people, they can pick someone in that field that they like the way they talk, they like the way they think, they maybe have similar background as them. And so people are selecting their mentors by all sorts of things, personality, values, worldview, whatever it is. And so all that matters is, can you get them results? And that's why I don't like the language expert or expertise because it trips up my students. They're like, I don't feel like an expert. Like, when am I going to feel like an expert enough to jump in and do this? It's scary to put out content. So I think thinking about yourself less is going to help because worrying about your expertise is a very narcissistic thing. It's actually selfish. Am I good enough? You're looking at yourself. The best thing you could do is get your eyes off of yourself. Look at this person that needs help and ask, could I help them? Like if they were like my friend in real life, I probably could help them. If they came to me and asked you guys, Cody, Justin, could you help me with this? If it's something that you've helped people with in the past, that's the same people on the internet. There's just more of them. And that's what I think about is just helping a friend who's become like an avatar of like all my customers, helping that friend achieve some results. And to your point, I only need to be a step ahead of them or 30% ahead of them. As I have gotten better in both of my businesses and journey, I have more to teach and more to share. And so I've been able to pull people further up the mountain. I can't take somebody where I haven't gone, but I don't need to. I can just find the people that are further behind the journey than I am and just focus on them. And you can make a ton of money doing that. You don't have to help everybody. You don't have to have a big audience. That's what I love about the internet is you don't have to be huge. The goal isn't to be huge. The goal isn't to be famous. The goal is to build a business. And you can do that by finding your small tribe of people that you can carry along to the next level. So I'm someone who's listening to this episode. I just jumped over that confidence hurdle. I'm ready to create content. Let's go back to your earlier example, actually, Graham, with the dad who wants to lose 20 pounds. I'm a dad. I just lost 20 pounds. I'm on my journey. I'm 30% ahead of the people in my target audience. What is that first piece of content that I need to create? Or how do you just go about framing and doing the research to like figuring out whether it's a video or a podcast or a blog post? Like, How do you even know what to create once you decide that you want to create stuff around certain content area. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great things you could do. One thing is if you know of a group of like people trying to lose weight or dads trying to lose weight, you can sort of lurk and sneak in those pre-existing groups and see what they're asking or see what they're talking about and get a sense of like, oh, people are interested in this. People struggle with this. I like to look on Amazon sometimes and see what books are published under the topic and read the two to four star reviews. I ignore the five and the ones because those are the fanboys and the haters, but the two to four star reviews, which are usually the more honest about like, hey, this is what I liked about the book. And this is what I felt like was missing for me. And that gives me an indication of what gap is there, what people are looking for. You can also just post on social or ask your friends that are dads, like, hey, I'm trying to help some of the dads around me like lose weight. Like if that's you, like what have you been struggling with or what's been your biggest challenge or what's your biggest goal? Like what do you want to achieve in your fitness like as a dad? And why is it hard? And just see what they say. And I think that little bit of research will give you like easily 10 to 20 content ideas of people have these five to 10 questions. People believe these five to 10 myths. People get stuck with this. People are looking at these five to 10 products. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. And if you look at really big YouTube channels on topics, you can get a sense of the type of content they're making. And you're going to notice they're going to be answering people's burning questions. They're going to be talking about certain techniques. They're going to be exposing myths and lies. Like what are the commonly held beliefs that you disagree with? They're going to be reviewing products. And so those are some frameworks of types of content you can make. And just start with what you think at that point. There's two types of content once you get into this. There's planned content and demand content. And so planned is what you want to go create based off of what you know, what you think you know, at least. And then demand content is once you have made some content and some people react to it, what are they asking for more of? And that's what kind of content you should make as well. And that's why you need to start to then get some feedback to then be able to have more questions to answer. That's how, again, I got started. I posted and my first year of content was probably based off of what people were asking in those first 10 videos. And that gave me an unlimited amount of stuff to talk about. So you're at that place in your journey where you're ahead of some folks, you figured out what you want to talk about. You're starting to put out that content. You're giving away some stuff. You know, you're figuring out your first products. I can imagine the next biggest thing people are going to wonder is how in the world do I know how much to charge somebody for this? Like, so for somebody getting started out, what would you recommend them do to understand that market and figure out what their value is? Yeah, this is a hard one. There are some helpful tried and true frameworks that have been true for the last decade plus and are, I think, still holding true. Like, A, you don't want to play in the really, really bargain basement. You don't want to be the Walmart of content online. So don't think of what you sell in terms of like books. Because again, like a book, we just have the world knows like, I'm not going to spend more than 25 bucks on a book. It seems like when books are worth way more than that, right? Like books change lives. It's worth way more than that. But when you're selling something like a video course, even if it's just like an hour or two hours with some videos explaining a concept, you could take the same material in a book and teach it in a video course where they can watch and listen and there's downloadables and they can ask questions. And the value goes way, way up, at least the perceived value, because it's such a better learning experience than reading a book. So I tell people, minimum, you should charge $50 for whatever you sell if it's a one-time purchase. So I think courses between $50 and $200 is a great range to live in. If you're in a hobby niche, if you're teaching something that can help people make more money, it helps them in their business or their career, then you can play in a higher level, you know, 500 to 1,000 or even beyond. When you get above 500 or $1,000, typically it works better these days to have some sort of live coaching element to it. That's not just the videos. Competition has kind of driven that those price anchors a little bit more. Anything's possible. I mean, you can sell $5,000 coaching packages as a group, but you probably want some live element there. But I say for people starting out, don't be cheaper than 50. Don't be more than 200 as a starting point. 
And you're going to be in that sweet spot of, I think Tim Ferriss even talked about this in the four hour work week. That was even a range he believed in of, it was easy to sell because you don't have to think too much about it when you're swiping your credit card in that range, but it's enough of a price bump that it's not the bargain basement, $10 course people that are going to complain the most, demand the most and want to pay the least. So on the marketing side of things, I know you mentioned like getting people in front of your products is one of the most important things Like you can't sell without an audience. You could get an audience from YouTube or podcasting or any of these social media platforms, but figuring out how to compete and actually like be at the, you know, the top of the barrel in terms of like the people to choose from for a specific topic, you know, that takes some time and figuring out. And I was wondering, I know Graham, you've kind of really niched yourself down and been able to outcompete some of the other bigger YouTubers in your particular instance in your space. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about how you've been able to do that. Cause you know, obviously if someone's like a new YouTuber and they just go to say Mr. Beast's page and they try to like copy his top 10 videos with the same titles and the same topics, like there's no way that they're going to get more eyeballs on their videos than Mr. Beast is getting on his for the same topics and the same thing. So like, how do you go about selecting things you can actually be competitive for and actually show up, you know, at the top of the rankings for? Well, there's like two things happening here, right? Like one is what's your goal? Like your goal shouldn't be to be a big YouTube channel. Like what's the point in that? Unless your model is brand deals, sponsorships, and ad revenue, which is the most visible model. So people think that's what I do. Like that's what you're trying to do is you make money selling ads or brand deals. No, I make money selling my own products. I'm a real business. I just use YouTube as a lead generation discoverability engine. So just A, decide what game are you playing? It's a lot harder to play the Mr. Beast game of like, have the biggest channel on YouTube and the most views because every view is going to lead to dollars in your bank account. And so it's hard and it's unpredictable because if you fall out of favor with the people or the algorithm, you lose money. I would prefer to control my income. So choose what game you're going to play. Let's say you're not going to play the Mr. Beast game. You're going to play the business game. Then your size of your audience doesn't matter nearly as much as the way you monetize it. So you can be literally unknown and still make a crap ton of money. One thing to consider then on top of which game you're playing is YouTube, let's say in particular, has changed their algorithm over the last couple of years to be way more democratized to brand new channels. So for example, my first channel, The Recording Revolution, has like 600,000 subscribers. I remember a day when all of a sudden, where I was ranking number one or two for most of these topics in my niche because of the size of my channel, there were some brand new baby channels that were showing up higher than me. I remember getting really pissed off. I was like, who are these people? Why are they ranking higher? And the more I dug, the more I realized YouTube was starting to shift. This was probably four years ago. They were starting to make this shift of like, they wanted brand new YouTubers to be excited about YouTube. So they would keep uploading content because that's how YouTube makes money. And so they decided not to weight the size of your audience as high in the algorithm as they once did. I don't know what the percentage is, but they shifted it. And so I started to see it didn't matter how big you were. It mattered that did you have relevant content people were looking for and did it get some engagement? And so I tested this on my 13-year-old Last year, when she was 12, we launched a YouTube channel one day because she was like, Dad, Dad, I want a YouTube channel. She wanted to do these video game walkthroughs for a game called Roblox. So I was like, this will be a perfect test. So she filmed this video and then we wanted to upload it. We created a brand new channel. And then I asked her, well, what's this video about? She's like, well, it's about Roblox. It's about this specific game inside of Roblox. And we're doing this specific type of build. And so like, that's what you need to title the video. Don't be creative, be clear, right? So let's just make a very clear title. Same thing in the description. We uploaded this video. She has zero subscribers. It's her first video. We upload it, we walk away. Come back three hours later. 
we get on a YouTube search on like an incognito browser and we type in that video game and that game within the game, those basic keywords and her videos on the first page of results. Wow. And she's zero. And there's like huge Roblox gamers that have these massive channels. And I was like, Chloe, you can rank on any of these things. It doesn't matter how big you are, but if you're publishing content that's relevant, searchable, you can rank. So if you take those two things in concert, anybody can rank, even if you're new, you don't have to be Mr. Beast. And then if you realize you don't have to ever have to be Mr. Beast to make a lot of money because of the way you sell your products, the kind of offers you create, the way you stack things like your own products and affiliate deals or affiliate you know, products or sponsorships, if you want to do that, or even one-on-one coaching, you could stack all these offers together and make really, really good money to the point where people are confused. Like people are sometimes confused with the amount of money I can make on my Graham Cochran channel because it's much smaller than the recording revolution. They have in their minds, like a certain number of views equals a certain amount of dollars. And that's just not true. There's another game being played, which is we're selling our own products in the back end. So choose what game you want to play and then you can rank right away. That's the power of YouTube. And kind of continuing a little bit on this theme of like the volume of input and what the outputs are. I know you've talked about before this idea of actually working like less to get what you want. And I'm just kind of curious if you could unpack that because I think that's something people are always looking for is, you know, we all have these super busy lives. So why in the world would it be a recommendation to actually maybe put in a little less effort into something? Yeah, well, it's like maybe not less effort. It's just more strategic effort. So Here's what I think. I think working all the time and hustling is probably the laziest thing you could do, right? Because it takes no amount of thinking or strategy to just keep doing stuff or to do all the things you see people doing. And okay, everyone's posting reels, I'll post reels. Like everyone's on TikTok, I'll get on TikTok. That's the laziest thing you could do. The smartest thing you could do is sit down and analyze what really drives revenue in my business. And there might be, let's say, 10 things that do, but maybe two of those things drive 90% of the revenue in my business and the other eight drive just a little bit. Could I cut those other eight things and lose just a smidge of revenue, but have most of my revenue and have four fifths of my time back to either just live my life (laughs) or double down even a little bit on the things that are working. And I could double my income by still working half as much if you follow that 80-20 principle, but it does take some thinking and most people are just too in the rhythm to stop and think. So I'm a weirdo and I, I decided early on, like I'm going to make it a game every year to see how few hours I can work and see if revenue doesn't go down and if it can go up even better. But even if it just stayed the same, I want to see like, does everything really matter? So I started cutting back on how much content I posted. I started cutting back on interacting on YouTube with all the comments. I started cutting back on social media and none of it made a difference. And I was able to figure out what really drives revenue for this type of business. And once you know that, you're so much more freed up to live your life to do more creative things. That's why I had time to write a book. That's why I have time to take my kids to school and pick them up every day. I mean, this is sort of the financial independence world when we think about like amass a certain amount of money, 4% rule, live off of that. You can have that without that large chunk of money if you have this type of business that only requires the five to 10 hours a week that you want to give it, where you just show up for an hour or two a day and play with it and have fun with it. That's kind of like living the FI lifestyle is you have control over your time. You've got income coming in that's predictable, but it does take going against the grain of even the other coaches that teach what I do, which is like, do all the stuff. They have to make themselves look important. I don't feel the need to look important. I want people to feel as free as I am to like live my life and have a family and have time to take care of myself and whatever else you want to do. I think it's the most efficient thing you could do. And the most respectful thing you could do is only do what you need to do in the business, no more and no less. 
Amen. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you walking through the mindset. And I do want to dig into the numbers here. As you know, Graham, this is a financial independence podcast. You just talked about a couple of your businesses. You're working like 10 hours a week, I think I read in your bio. You're running two seven-figure businesses. I think you left that part out because you're a humble guy. But guys, two seven-figure businesses working around 10 hours a week. Can we talk about like the evolution though? How do you get up to that point? Because I think a lot of people, if they're listening to this episode, they're like, that's nice. Like I I kind of want to get started. I might start a YouTube channel. I might start a podcast or a blog or start creating content on any of these short platforms. But like, what does this look like played out 10 years? And that's exactly your story, Graham. So can we kind of talk about like the evolution of your income? You can get as granular as you want with the numbers. Just like, I guess, what were you making you know, pre-2009 when you quit that job? And then what were you making that first year and then up until now? Yeah. So when I lost my job, I was making $35,000 a year working 40 hours a week. And so my wife, she was working too at the time. So we both combined were making 60. And then when we had our baby, we knew she wanted to stay home. And so my like long-term dream goal was to replace both of our salaries and make 60,000 a year. If I could do that from home, talking about music, like game over, life is awesome. So year one, I made (laughs) $7,000 working full-time on my business. Year two though, I hit the $60,000 mark. And that was the first time I realized, I was doing the same amount of work, is the first time I realized the power of having content out there on your blog, on YouTube, that's searchable, discoverable every day, even though you made it a year ago, and how that could start to grow. And I was like, oh man, there's something here about this. It's not going to be linear. It's going to be exponential. Year three, I made $120,000. That's when we had the most fun of our life ever because I was like, dude, our budget is, I think it cost us 2000 a month to live. It was super cheap and we're making 10 k a month. I was like, I bought a minivan. I got us a nicer house. And we kept the first house as a rental. I was like, dude, I'm, I'm rich. This is awesome. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. And then the next year, 250,000. And then the next year, 500,000. And then 600,000 the year after that. And then it took me probably just two more years to hit the million dollar a year mark. I think 2018 was the first year I hit $1 million in a 12 month period. And that was in the recording revolution, my first business. And that was also the same year I started my personal brand, what I'm doing now. That's just like a passion project. Because again, it was only taking me 10 hours a week to run that. Now I'm doing a million a year. And I was like, so interested in online business. And I had done an article in Business Insider that got me a little bit of press. So people were emailing me from all over the world. They were like, could you teach me the business model? I don't care about your music thing. I just want to know how did you build that business? And so I started coaching people for free people with personal fitness goals or businesses and all kinds of people. And I was like, oh, this is super fun too. So I wanted to build a brand just to have an outlet to talk about. I basically just wanted a Twitter profile so I could talk about online business because my music people didn't care. And so I launched that business just for fun. That started growing. It was $100,000 year one, $250,000 year two, $500,000 year three. And then we did 1.2 million last year. It'll be about like 1.7 this year. So it's been crazy. And the parallel of both of my businesses, and then I've coached a lot of students who have done six, multi-six and seven-figure businesses as well. They all have the same curve, which is this is a slow way to get going. It is not sexy at first. It really isn't. But every video you post or every podcast you post, it's evergreen. It'll live forever. Unlike social media, like it'll disappear unless you go viral. And so you're building something. You're building all these little pathways back to you in the internet. And eventually it adds up to something once you've had a few more products, more people are hearing about you, but it's not a lot of money up front, but it's work that lasts forever. And now I'm reaping the rewards of stuff I did in 2009, 10, 11, 12. And 
it's kind of silly how much money can be made with how few hours you work because it's really no longer tied to what you're doing. It's what you've built. You've built an asset, just like saving up a million dollars in an investment. It's not you working anymore. It's it working for you. It's the exact same way to think about it. Your business, if you do it this way, is just another asset you're building and investing in. And just one little clarification question, because we're talking about like such an insane, like earnings per hours. Are you saying that you only work 10 hours per week or is it like you're doing 10 hours and there's some other people behind the scenes that you're hiring that's doing the work or there's literally only 10 hours of work being done? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I'm only working five to 10 hours a week. I have a small team doing some things for sure, like customer service, uploading stuff, making thumbnails. Over the years, I've hired a marketing director to like help think through strategy, that kind of stuff. But I don't even know how many hours he works. So it's like, nobody knows. We just achieved the goal. So you can scale with team for sure. But for context, I never hired anybody until year four. And I was already doing about $500,000 a year. And I was working about 20 hours a week. So I have a community of people that I take through like where their goal is just to reach six figures, for example. And my goal for them, linear is like, hey, let's grow your business. You've won the game. It's kind of arbitrary, but it's a lot of people's goals. Won the game when you're making $10,000 a month from your business and it only takes you 20 hours a week to create that. Because it's not just money for me, it's time. They're very important currencies. So it's arbitrary, but it's like, hey, what are your income goals? But also what are your hour goals? And you can do all of that without hiring a single person. I encourage people to make one hire just to learn the power of delegation, but I'm slow to do it. I hate delegating. I don't trust people to do it as well as myself. So I got work to do there. But yeah, you can make multi six figures working by yourself for 20 hours a week. Easy. It won't happen right away, but it's not hard work. It just takes some time. Yeah. Well, I just love that you shared that entire story. I mean, $7,000 in that first year. Like a lot of people probably mentally and financially just like couldn't weather the storm. And now you're making, you know, 1.7 in one business and over a million dollars in another business. But it started at $7,000 a year back, just putting video after video after video on food stamps. Like you probably didn't have a ton of confidence in the business at that point. And that's just what it takes, man. It's like the grit. So seriously, just appreciate you sharing your story. I'm really hoping that we have some five show listeners who, whether they want to take this like full time, like you did, or even just having a little side business, creating content on whatever skills, whatever hobbies you're interested in, because everybody has something to share. Everybody is better than other people at something. And if you just take the time to create a little bit of content on that, it could be a really profitable business in the future. But Graham, man, just want to thank you for coming on. And I want our listeners to have a chance to connect with you on whatever platforms, whatever mediums you see best fit. So where do you want to send people who want to learn more about you and your businesses and your coaching and everything you have going on? Yeah. If you want to dive into my book, I give away the first two chapters for free at grahamcochran.com slash chapters. And then you can see the whole business model like mapped out and see if it's juicy enough for you. Start there. And then if you want to interact with me, I'm only platform I'm on is Instagram at the Graham Cochran. And I'll pop in there every once in a while, but I don't spend a whole lot of time on social media. <laughs> well, thank you, Graham, so much for giving us the time, the transparency, and just the great way of looking at things that maybe, uh, you know, people had kind of gotten overwhelmed with or intimidated by in their minds. And I really love the way you broke it down for us today. Yeah. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Justin, for having me on. It was fun. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend. And also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time.
Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available. The very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.